Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Portofee podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Sra Vigunta, who is both a fellowship-trained pediatric ophthalmologist and neuro-ophthalmologist, who's now faculty at the Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah. Thanks for coming on, Sarav. Thanks, Ben. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I feel really lucky to be a guest. I, I'm super glad that you are coming on because the people have asked many times for more pediatric ophthalmology, which has definitely been kind of a hole in our coverage of this podcast. And I really appreciate you being kind enough to come on to help teach us. And you were also kind enough to help prep us a case for us to start on this topic that we're going to cover now. Okay, so whenever I'm trying to learn something new, one of my mentors starting an intern year, Dr. Roger Harry, would always say, imagine you're the only comprehensive ophthalmologist around living in Beaver, Utah, which is actually a real place, halfway between St. George, Utah, beautiful area, and also Salt Lake City. So there's no specialists around, and it's all you. So imagine you're in your clinic. A father brings his three-month-old baby for an eye exam. He's not sure what the pediatrician was worried about and why the baby was referred in the first place. And you're not used to seeing kids, but you decide to do your best. With Krimsky testing, you see that the baby's left eye looks a little bit isotropic, maybe less than 15 diopters. The baby looks like uh, he can fix and follow with the right eye. The left eye adducts well, but really can't abduct. You try a doll's head maneuver and get the baby to abduct the left eye, but it still doesn't move much. Okay, now you're freaking out. Yeah. So just a review for us, what's a doll's head maneuver? I don't think we've actually covered that on our podcast before. Yeah. So doll's head maneuver is trying to use the, the motion of the head to try to move the eyes, essentially. So if the baby is fixing uh, straight ahead and looking at you and you rotate the head to the left or right, the eyes should stay uh, fixated on you. So then you can see that the eyes um, have full movement on abduction and adduction. Okay. But it doesn't here. Oh yeah, it doesn't. On this. It didn't yeah. here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm freaking out now that I know I understand what's going on. So yeah, is, is this time to, to shove the, bed, the baby's head in the scanner? Um, possibly. So you're wondering, of course, does this baby have a sixth, sixth nerve palsy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you're like, okay, I don't have a scanner here right at this moment. Let me see what else I can figure out on my exam. You're watching the baby's eyes. The left eyelids look like they're narrowing when the baby uh, adducts. The eyeball also seems to shoot up super nasally when the baby tries to adduct. The globe oh. also seems to retract back. Huh. And then again, you notice that the esotropia isn't very severe. It's less than what you'd expect to see if this patient had a complete sixth nerve palsy. So you're thinking, okay, something broader in this differential. It doesn't seem like the, all that other stuff with the eyelid and the globe retraction does not seem like classic with a sixth nerve palsy. So these features uh, that you found on exam are consistent with, with Duane syndrome and not sixth nerve palsy. Aha, uh-huh. which is going to be the topic of our episode today. How convenient. So <laughs> I feel I've had med students ask me like, what is Duane syndrome? And I really struggled to explain that. Can you help define it for us? Yeah, definitely. So Duane syndrome actually falls under a bigger category of conditions called congenital cranial disinnervation disorders or CCDD for short. They're a group of strabismus disorders. They also include, if you've heard of Mobius syndrome or congenital fibrosis of the extraocular muscles, those all fall under the same category as Duane syndrome. In these syndromes, patients have developmental defects of one or more of their cranial nerve nuclei. So their cranial nerve nuclei are hypoplastic or they're absent, and the nerves um, traveling from the nuclei are also oftentimes hypoplastic or absent. 
And that can result in the muscles, the extraocular muscles being abnormal. They can become stiffened or contracted. So what are some of the classic clinical features that this would result in with Duane syndrome? Yeah, I think there's just a handful of things that residents should know and be aware of that also help you when you're the only ophthalmologist in Beaver, Utah. So for example, it's important to know that there's a co-contraction of the medial rectus and the lateral rectus on attempted adduction. So that's what causes that globe retraction. Because they're both pulling at the same time, the globe kind of pulls into the globe or exactly. pulls into the orbit. Uh, yeah. Interesting. It's like they develop anophthalmos and that leads to narrowing of their eyelid fissure. So their eyelids, it looks like they're kind of winking at you. But there's another reason that the eyelids seem to wink at you. That's because in some patients on attempted adduction, there's also decreased innervation to their levator palpebrae. So then that, that uh, muscle comes down, the lid comes down. In some contexts, we talk about being on the difference for ptosis, right? Like it's, a kid might look totic, but only intermittently, and this could be one cause of that. Yeah, exactly. You want to think about like Duane syndrome and Marcus Gunn-Jawink in your differential for ptosis. Yep. And, you know, I know on the tests, there's always a big hullabaloo about the different types of Duane syndrome. Can you re- uh, review those for us? Yes, absolutely. So and in the BCIC, you'll see these listed as uh, type 1, type 2, and type 3. Um, so I would really think about these as a continuum of, of Duane syndrome rather than as individual types, because when you're... Um, examining a patient, they may not cleanly follow into one of these types. But let's just go through them just because it's important for you to know. So type 1 includes poor abduction, and the patient is usually esotropic. This is the majority of uh, patients with Duane syndrome. They'll fall into this category, so 50 to 80% of cases. In type 2, there's poor adduction, and the patient is exotropic. And then in type 3, there's both poor abduction and poor adduction in the same eye, so the patient can be exotropic, esotropic, or even ortho in primary position. Got it. You know, I the, the, the one thing that I could contribute to this is the mnemonic, which are always my favorite things. And, you know, a lot of residents probably heard this mnemonic too, but the convenient thing is that all these different types um, can be remembered by how many Ds are deficient in that type. So type one has a problem with A, B, Duction, so there's only one D in abduction, so that's type one. Type two has a problem with a deduction. There's two Ds in adduction, so that's type two. And then when you have a problem with both a abduction and a deduction, there's three Ds, so that's type three. It's so convenient. I wonder I if they that. like it was. Yeah, that was a pure coincidence, right? That 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 worked out. Imagine it was like the opposite way. <laughs> it'd be so annoying. I know it'd be so hard to remember, <laughs> but I definitely still use that mnemonic if I'm being honest. <laughs> Glad it's not just me. You mentioned uh, before this that there is maybe another way to classify Duane syndromes. Yeah, so clinically, um, there's another way to classify them. So clinically, you might just say, because this, these Duane syndromes are on a spectrum, you might just say, this person has esotropic Duane syndrome or exopo- exotropic Duane syndrome. Um, for example, in type 1 Duane syndrome, it's usually esotropic. So patients most often are ET rather than XT. In type 2, it's usually an exotropic Duane syndrome. And type 3 has an equal number of esotropic and exotropic cases. And another thing that you were mentioning before uh, we were recording is that there is a legendary fourth type of Duane syndrome. What, what the heck is that? Yeah, this is the fourth type. You won't find this in, in the VCSC. But it's oh, this is a secret. This is coming out now. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell anyone <laughs> else. Get ready. Okay, so patients typically in type 4 have an exotropia in primary gaze. And what happens is when they try to adduct their eye, 
that I just automatically AB ducks. It's called synergistic divergence. It seems as though there's hardly any ipsilateral sixth nerve function to that eye, and the ipsilateral third nerve innervates the lateral rectus way more than it innervates the medial rectus. So when you try to pull the eye in and adduct, it just AB ducks instead. So shout out to my professors in Indiana University, uh, Dr. Sprunger and Helveston, who published a retrospective case series on this topic. Oh, wow. Okay, so basically when they're trying to pull the eye in, it just goes out even more. Is that, that, is that exactly. what, what I had? Yeah, wow. it's sort of like a surprise movement. You're like, oh, I didn't expect that to happen. Gotcha. Okay, so when patients have these problems, are they usually just in one eye or in both eyes? Yeah, really good question. Again, since this is like a spectrum of diseases, 15% of cases are actually bilateral and they can have different types of Duane syndrome between the two eyes. So that's, that can get a little confusing when you're um, examining patients. So you have like type five with like two in one eye and three in the other. Okay, I don't know. Oh, we should try to come up with some of these. Yeah, yeah, adding, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get the six type and the... Let's add up all the Ds. <laughs> just add up, yeah. Okay, something that just broke my brain when you were presenting your case is that you said that that patient also presented with a superior nasal upshoot. Well, how can upshoots happen with Duane syndrome? Well, let's fix your brain like right now. Okay, okay. There's two different ways that you can get upshoots or downshoots. So one way is to consider like the mechanical cause. So when the affected eye tries to adduct, there's, let's think about it in terms of, let's say, type 1 uh, Duane syndrome. So you're trying to adduct the eye and that lateral rectus is so tight that there's a little bit of vertical slippage of that muscle, about one or two millimeters, and it sort of acts like a leash and allows the globe to sort of rotate up into the supranasal area or infranasal area. It's kind of it's called the bridal effect or the leash effect. That makes sense for the bridal effect, but you said there's more possible reasons why upshoots or downshoots could happen. Yeah, the other theory is that there's abnormal innervation. Again, this whole condition, it has to do with abnormal innervation anyway. So it's thought that there's abnormal synergistic innervation between the medial rectus and the superior rectus, or the medial rectus and the inferior rectus, and or even the obliques. So when the medial rectus is activated, the other extraocular muscles, these vertical extraocular muscles, can be activated in some way, causing there to be more of an upshoot or a downshoot. Wow, so like a lot of muscles can get in the game here, like when you have Duane syndrome. Yeah, got it. Exactly. So I'm sure that like you you get asked this all the time, but I could imagine a parent is told their child has Duane syndrome, and one of their first questions would be, like, "How did my kid get this? Do we have any ideas uh, how this happens?" Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You're right. People always ask, and and we're still wondering the same thing as pediatric ophthalmologists and neuro ophthalmologists. It's mostly sporadic. It's been found that in 5 to 10% of patients, there is an autosomal dominant inheritance. Interestingly, it's more common in females and in the left eye. Hmm. How interesting. Um, do we have any evidence on like imaging about what happens in Duane syndrome? Is there like something, you know, some kind of damage that happens neurologically? Yes. So, of course, there have been imaging studies done on patients with Duane syndrome, and they've shown that the cranial nerve 6 nucleus is either absent or hypoplastic, hasn't developed properly. And there can be aberrant branches of the, of the third cranial nerve, and you can follow them, and you can see that they innervate the lateral rectus. So there's a lot of possibilities that could be going on in each individual patient, but this is within the range of what we can see. Sometimes we don't even see anything abnormal. Hmm. What's good to know is that um, if you're seeing these features in a patient with Duane syndrome, the typical 
uh, findings of co-contraction, lid fissure narrowing, upshoots and downshoots, a esotropia that's smaller than you would expect in a classic six nerve palsy. Those are enough features to say, okay, this is probably a Duane syndrome. And if there aren't any other neurological or developmental issues in the patient, don't have to necessarily image them. Gotcha. But knowing that, is there anything else that Duane syndrome can be associated with that we should be looking for when you mention neurologic issues and other issues? Right, yeah. So uh, Duane syndrome has been associated with Golden Heart Syndrome. So um, Ben, do you remember some of the findings in Golden Heart Syndrome? <laughs> I shouldn't have asked, uh, but I, I totally do. Without notes, they can have hemifacial microsomia, ocular dermoids, ear abnormalities, pre-auricular skin tags, and eyelid colobomas. So do you have a good demonic for that, actually? I'm like, I should have thought of this before. Yeah, we should think of one. I'm sure there's yeah. one out there. Yeah, I'll uh, maybe, maybe at the end I'll edit in a nice demonic. I don't oh my know. gosh, we but should. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now what about treatment? Do you have to do any, you know, now we're kind of like more happy. It's not a sixth nerve palsy that, you know, might indicate something more dangerous. But we have to, what do we have to do for treatment for these children? Yes, that's a great question. So in pediatric ophthalmology, when we're trying to manage any of these ocular conditions and strabismus, we are really looking to optimize the child's visual development. So we want to make sure their acuity is developing properly, their visual fields, and their stereopsis. You'll see that kids are quite adaptable. They'll develop some sort of head position so that they can have binocular vision, and that helps them not develop double vision, especially at a young age. You know, I imagine in terms of treatment, we don't have, you know, many things besides like surgery if, if they would need, you know, some kind of treatment. So what are the indications for surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is something that I remember when I started fellowship last year, I was like, okay, um, a lot of these kids who come in with Duane's, they're just so functional and doing just fine. But there comes a point sometimes when their anomalous head position is very significant. They're missing certain things in their peripheral vision you're starting to develop or you start to observe that they have a manifest strabismus, like a strabismus that you can measure and they can't just fix it by turning their head in a certain direction. And then in adults, this anomalous head position, you can imagine if you hold your head in a, in a weird way for many, many years and most of your life, you can develop some arthritis in your neck, cervicalgia and headaches. That can be quite bothersome to people. And adults you know, don't want to have other people noticing that they hold their head in a certain way every time they talk to other people. It's hard to make eye contact well. So diplopia can develop in adults too, and that's another reason to consider surgery. Uh, because in type 1, for example, as you can imagine, that lateral rectus muscle is very tight. It doesn't work mm -hmm. very well, and it can get tighter and tighter with time, and then they can develop, again, a manifest for business. Mm, that they, that they, so they might have been okay as kids, but then over time it could get worse and worse. Right. Interesting. You know, but when when we're talking about, as I'm thinking about talking about surgery, you know, you told me in the beginning that this is like a cranial nerve, um, like innervation issue with the with the extraocular muscles. So it seems like to to try to fix these eye movements, you'd have to do something to the to like the cranial nerves, which is not what we're doing here. So how do you fix our eye movements? Well, if, unless you know how to do a cranial nerve transplant, you really can't fix the cranial nerve exactly. So the way to fix it is try to work on what we, what we can surgerize, which is the extraocular muscles. 
So we can't fix how well the eyes move in every direction. We can't give them more innervation. But the main goal of surgery would be to try to get their um, abnormal head position fixed so it looks more normal um, and try to fix those upshoots and downshoots and that globe retraction and help them see with single binocular vision. I know that it's probably would take a whole fellowship to describe surgical interventions in strabismus, especially something as complicated as Duane syndrome. But can you give me like a kind of like general principles of how you tackle, say, type one Duane's? Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to start. So I would say the mainstay for surgery in type one Duane syndrome, and again, this is the type where patients are usually esotropic. This is the most common type, and they cannot AB duct well. So the mainstay is a medial rectus weakening procedure, most commonly a medial rectus recession of the affected eye. If there's a larger face turn, though, then you can consider recessing or weakening the medial rectus of both eyes. You would want to recess or weaken that contralateral medial rectus more than the ipsilateral medial rectus, actually. Oh, wait, why, why would you want to do that? Yeah, that really confused me at first when I heard about that. But if you think about it, actually, we do this because recessing the ipsilateral medial rectus too much can cause that lateral rectus that's already super tight to be more powerful and pull that eye into an exotropic position because now that counterbalance mm. of that medial rectus isn't there. So we don't want the eye that's affected to constantly sit in abduction, right, or become exotropic. So we right. do less surgery on the ipsilateral medial rectus and more surgery to weaken the contralateral medial rectus. Gotcha. So like the affected eye is kind of under more tension. So like it's really easy to kind of overdo it and let it kind of swing out into exotropia because of that lateral rectus is so tight. Exactly. So another mainstay of surgical correction is that we really want to avoid resecting the tight lateral rectus. So we want to avoid that um, because it can cause more globe retraction. That tight muscle will pull that eye even more anophthalmic into the globe. What about in type 2 Duane syndrome? You know, we've been talking about type 1. What changes are there? For type 2 Duane syndrome, as you'd expect, lateral rectus recession is the favored procedure. Great. Thank you for reviewing Duane syndrome with us. I feel like I understand what the heck it is like a thousand times better. If you like to support the podcast, you can give us a rating review on iTunes where we found us. If you like to follow the podcast, we have a Twitter at eyes four ears of number four. We hope to have Sarav back again and you know, leave a rating if you you know really appreciate your time on this episode. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Bye.